Section 4 of Come Rack, Come Rope This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by James Carson Come Rack, Come Rope by Robert Hugh Benson Book 1, Chapter 4 Part 1 the company was already assembled both within and without Padley, when Robin rode up from the riverside on a fine windy morning for the sport of the day. Perhaps a dozen horses stood tethered at the entrance to the little court, with a man or two to look after them, for the greater part of the riders were already within, and a continual coming and going of lads with dogs. Falconers each with his cage or three-sided frame on which sat the hawks. A barking of hounds, a screaming of birds, a clatter of voices and footsteps in the court. All this showed that the boy was none too early. A man stepped forward to take his mare and his hawks, and Robin slipped from his saddle and went in. Padley Hall was just such a house as would serve a wealthy gentleman who desired a small country estate with sufficient dignity and not too many responsibilities. It stood upon the side of the hill, well set above the damps of the valley, yet protected from the northeasterly winds by the high slopes, on the top of which lay Burbage Moor, where the hawking was to be held. On the south, over the valley, stood out the modest hall and buttery, as indeed they stand to this day, with a door between them, well buttressed in two places upon the falling ground, and one by a chimney and the other by a slope of masonry. And behind these buildings stood the rest of the court, the stables, the wash-house, the bake-house, and such like, below, and above the sleeping-rooms for the family and the servants. On the first floor, above the buttery and the hall, was situated the ladies' parlour and chapel, for this, at least, Padley had, however little its dignity in other matters, that it retained its chapel, served in these sorrowful days, not as once by a chaplain, but by whatever travelling priest might be there. Robin entered through the great gate on the east side, a dark entrance kept by a porter who saluted him, and rode through into the court. And here indeed was the company, for out of the windows of the low hall on his left came a babble of tongues, while two or three gentlemen with pots in their hands saluted him from the passage door, telling him that Mr. Thomas Fitzherbert was within. Mr. Fenton was one of these, come over from North Lees, where he had his manor, a brisk, middle-aged man, dressed soberly and well, with a pointed beard and pleasant, dancing eyes. And Mr. John, too, came last night, he said, but he will not hawk with us. He is ridden from London on private matters. It was an exceedingly gay sight on which Robin looked as he turned into the hall. It was a low room, sealed in oak and wainscoted halfway up, a trifle dark, since it was lighted only by one or two little windows on either side, yet warm and hospitable-looking with a great fire burning in a chimney on the south side, 
and perhaps a dozen and a half persons sitting over their food and drink, since they were dining early today to have the longer time for sport. A voice hailed him as he came in, and he went up to pay his respects to Mr. John Fitzherbert, tall man, well past middle age, who sat with his hat on his head at the centre of the high table, with the arms of Eyre and Fitzherbert beneath the canopy, all emblazoned, to do the honours of the day. "'You are late, sir, you are late,' he cried out genially. "'We are just done.' Robin saluted him. He liked the man, though he did not know him very well, for he was continually about the country, now in London, now in Norbury, now in Swinnerton, always occupied with these endless matters of fines and recusancy. Robin saluted him then, said a word or two, bowed to Mr. Thomas, his son, who came up to speak with him, then looked for Marjorie. She sat there at the corner of the table with Mrs. Fenton at one side and an empty seat on the other. Robin immediately sat down in it to eat his dinner, beginning with the gross foods, according to the English custom. There was a piece of Christmas brawn today, from a pig fattened on oats and peas, and hardened by being lodged, while he lived, on a boarded floor. All this was told Robin across the table with particularity while he ate it and drank, according to etiquette, a cup of bastard. He attended to all this zealously, while never for an instant was he unaware of the girl. They tricked their elders very well, these two innocent ones. You would have sworn that Robin looked for another place and could not see one. You would have sworn that they were shy of one another, and spoke scarcely a dozen sentences. Yet they did very well each in the company of the other, and Robin indeed, before he had finished his partridge, had conveyed to her that there was news that he had, and must give to her before the day was out. She looked at him with enough dismay in her face for him at least to read it, for she knew by his manner that it would not be happy news. So too, when the fruit was done and dinner was over, for they had no opportunity to speak at any length. Again you would have sworn that the last idea in his mind as in hers was that he should be the one to help her to her saddle. Yet he did so. And he fetched her hawk for her, and settled her reins in her hand. And presently he on one side of her, with Mr. Fenton on the other side, were riding up through Padley Chase, and the talk and the laughter went up too. Part two. Up on the high moors in the frank chase, here indeed was a day to make sad hearts rejoice. The air was soft, as if spring would come before his time. And in the great wind that blew continually from the southwest, bearing the high clouds swiftly against the blue, ruffling the stiff heather twigs and bilberry beneath, here was wine enough for any mourners, before them as they went, two riding before, with falconers on either side, a little behind, and the lads with the dogs beside them, and the rest in a silent line, some twenty yards to the rear, stretched the wide flat moor like a tumbled tablecloth, 
broken here and there by groups of wind-tossed beech and oak, backed by the tall limestone crags like pillar capitals of an upper world, with here and there a little shallow quarry whence marble had been taken for Derby. But more lovely than all were the valleys seen from here, as great troughs up whose sides trooped the leafless trees, lit by the streams that threw back the sunlit sky from their bosoms. With here a mist of smoke blown all about from a village out of sight, here the shadow of a travelling cloud that fled as swift as the wind that drove it, extinguishing the flash of water only to release it again, darkening a sweep of land only to make the sunlight that followed it the more sweet. Yet the two saw little of this, dear and familiar as they found it, since first they rode together, and next, as it should be with young hearts, the sport presently began and drove all else away. The sport was done in this way. The two that rode in front selected each from the cage one of his own falcons. It was peregrines that were used at the beginning of the day, since they were first after partridges, and so rode, carrying his falcon on his wrist, hooded, belled, and in the leash, ready to cast off. Immediately before them went a lad with a couple of dogs to nose the game, these also in a leash, until they stiffened. Then the lad released them and stepped softly back, while the riders moved on at a foot's pace, and the spaniels behind rose on their hind legs, choked by the chain, whimpering, fifty yards in the rear. Slowly the dogs advanced, each a frozen model of craft and bloodlust, till an instant afterwards, with a whir and a chattering like a broken clock, the covey whirled from the thick growth underfoot and flashed away northward, and a moment later up went the peregrines behind them. Then indeed it was suave qui pue, for the ground was full of holes here and there, though there were grass stretches as well on which all rode with loose rein. The two whose falcons were sprung always in front, according to custom, and the rest in a medley behind. Away then went the birds, pursued and pursuers, till, like a falling star, the falcon stooped, and then maybe the other, a moment later, down upon the quarry. And a minute later there was the falcon back again, shivering with pride and ecstasy, or all ruffle-feathered with shame, back on his master's wrist, and another torn partridge, or maybe two, in the bottom of the lad's bag and arguments went full pelt, and cries, and sometimes sharp words, and faults were found, and praise was given, and so on, for under the pair. It was but natural that Robin and Marjorie should compete one against the other, for they were riding together and talked together. So presently Mr. Thomas called to them, and beckoned them to their places. Robin set aside Agnes on to the cage, and chose Magdalen, and Marjorie chose Sharpie. The array was set, and all moved forward. It was a short chase, and a merry one. Two birds rose from the heather, and flew screaming, skimming low, as from behind them moved on the shadows of death, still as clouds, 
with great noiseless sweeps of sickle-shaped wings. Behind came the gallopers, Marjorie on her black horse, Robin on Cecily, seeming to compete, yet each content if either won, each maybe, or at least Marjorie, desiring that the other should win. And the wind screamed past them as they went. Then came the stoops, together as if fastened by one string, faultless and exquisite. And as the two rode up and drew rein, there side by side on the windy turf, two fierce statues of destiny, cruel-eyed, blood-stained on the beaks, resolute and suspicious, eyed them motionless, the claws sunk deeply through back and head, awaiting recapture. Marjorie turned swiftly to the boy as he leaped off. In the chapel, she said, at Padley. Robin stared at her. Then he understood and nodded his head as Mr. Thomas rode up, his beard all blown about by the wind, breathless but congratulatory. Part 3 It fell on Robin's mind with a certain heaviness and reproach that it should have been she who should have carried in her head all day the unknown news that he was to give her, and he who should have forgotten it. He understood then a little better of all that he must be to her, since, as he turned to her, his head full of hawks and the glory of the shouting wind and every thought of faith and father clean-blown away, it was to her mind that the underthought had leapt, that here was their first and perhaps their last chance of speaking in private. It was indeed their last chance, for the sun already stood over chapelle le Fris, far away to the southwest. They must begin their circle to return, in which the ladies should fly their merlins after larks, and there was no hope henceforth for Robin. Henceforth she rode with Mrs. Fenton and two or three more, while the gentleman who loved sport more than courtesy turned to the left over the broken ground to work back once more after partridges and Robin dared no more ride with his love, for fear that his company all day with her should be marked. It was within an hour of sunset that Robin, riding ahead, having lost a hawk and his hat, having fallen into a bog-hole, being one mask of mud from head to foot, slid from his horse into Dick's hands and demanded if the ladies were back. Yes, sir. They are back half an hour ago. They are in the parlour. Robin knew better. I shall be riding in ten minutes, he said. Give the mare a mouthful. He limped across the court, and looking behind him to see if any saw, and finding the court at that instant empty, ran up, as well as he could, the stone staircase that rose from the outside to the chapel door. It was unlatched. He pushed it open and went in. It was a brave thing that the Fitzherberts did in keeping such a place at all, since the greatest Protestant fool in the valley knew what the little chamber was that had the angels carved on the beam ends and the piscina in the south wall. Windows looked out every way. Through those on the south could be seen now the darkening valley and the sunlit hills, and yet more necessary, 
the road by which any travellers from the valley must surely come. Within, too, scarcely any pains were taken to disguise the place. It was wainscoted from roof to floor, veiled, floored, and walled in oak. A great chest stood beneath the little east window of two lights that cried altar if any chest ever did so. A great press stood against the wooden screen that shut the room from the ladies' parlour next door. Filled in three shells with innocent linen, for this was the only disguise that the place stooped to put on. You could not swear that mass was said there, but you could swear that it was a place in which mass would very suitably be said. A couple of benches were against the press, and three or four chairs stood about the floor. Robin saw her against the light as soon as he came in. She was still in her blue riding dress, with the hood on her shoulders, and held her whip in her hand. But he could see no more of her head than the paleness of her face and the gleam on her black hair. Well, then, she whispered sharply, and then, why, what a state you are in. It's nothing, said Robin, a roll in a bog hole. She looked at him anxiously. You're not hurt. Sit down, at least. He sat down stiffly, and she beside him, still watching to see if he were the worse for his falling. He took her hand in his. I am not fit to touch you, he said. Tell me the news. Tell me quickly. So he told her of the wrangle in the parlour and what had passed between his father and him, of his own bitterness and his letter and the way in which the old man had taken it. He has not spoken to me since, he said, except in public before the servants. Both nights after supper he has sat silent and I beside him. And you have not spoken to him? she asked quickly. I had said something to him after supper on Sunday and he made no answer. He has done all his writing himself. I think it is for him to speak now. I should only anger him more if I tried it again. She sighed suddenly and swiftly, but said nothing. Her hand lay passive in his, but her face was turned now to the bright southerly window, and he could see her puzzled eyes and her down-turned, serious mouth. She was thinking with all her wits, and plainly could come to no conclusion. She turned to him again. And you told him plainly that you and I, that you and I, that you and I loved one another? I told him plainly. And it was his contempt that angered me. She sighed again. It was a troublesome situation in which these two children found themselves. He was the father of one of them that knew, yet not the parents of the other, who should know first of all. Neither was there any promise of secrecy, and no hope of obtaining it. If she should not tell her parents, then if the old man told them, deception would be charged against her. And if she should tell them, perhaps he would not have done so, and so all be brought to light too soon and without cause. And besides all this, there were the other matters, heavy enough before, yet far more heavy now. Matters of their hopes for the future, the complications with regard to religion, what Robin should do, what he should not do. 
So they sat there silent, she thinking, and he waiting upon her thought. She sighed again and turned to him her troubled eyes. My Robin, she said, I have been thinking so much about you, and I have feared sometimes. She stopped herself, and he looked for her to finish. She drew her hand away and stood up. Oh, it is miserable, she cried. And all might have been so happy. The tears suddenly filled her eyes, so that they shone like flowers in dew. He stood up, too, and put his muddy arm around her shoulders. She felt so slight and slender. It will be happy, he said. What have you been fearing? She shook her head, and tears ran down. I cannot tell you yet. Robin, what a holy man that travelling priest must be, who said Mass on Sunday. The lad was bewildered at her swift changes of thought, for he did not yet see the chain on which they hung. He strove to follow her. It seems so to me, too, he said. I think I have never seen. It seems so to you, too, she cried. Why, what do you know of him? He was amazed at her vehemence. She had drawn herself clear of his arm and was looking at him full in the face. I met him on the moor, he said. I had some talk with him. I got his blessing. You got his blessing? Why, so did I, after the Mass, when you were gone. Then that should join us more closely than ever, he said. In heaven, perhaps, but on earth, she checked herself again. Tell me what you thought of him, Robin. I thought it was strange that such a man as that should live such a rough life. If he were in the seminary now, Sefet Douay, she seemed a shade paler, but her eyes did not flicker. Yes, she said. And you thought? I thought that it was not that kind of man who should fare so hardly. If he were a man like John Merton, who was accustomed to such things, or a man like me, again he stopped, he did not know why, but it was as if she had cried out, though she neither spoke nor moved. You thought that, did you, Robin? she said presently never moving her eyes from his face. I thought so, too. But I do not know why he was talking about Mr. Simpson, said the lad. There are other affairs more pressing. I am not sure, she said. Marjorie, my love, what are you thinking about? She had turned her eyes and was looking out through the little window. Outside the red sunlight still lay on the crags and slopes beyond the deep valley beneath them and her face was bright in the reflected brightness. Yet he thought he had never seen her look so serious. She turned her eyes back to him as he spoke. I am thinking of a great many things, she said. I am thinking of the faith, and of sorrow, and of love. My love, what do you mean? Suddenly she made a swift movement toward him, and took him by the lapels. He could see her face close beneath his, Yet it was in shadow again, and he could make out of it no more than the shadows of mouth and eyes. Robin, she said, I cannot tell you unless God tells you himself. I am told that I am too scrupulous sometimes. I do not know what I think, nor what is right, nor what are fancies. But, but I know that I love you with all my heart, and, and that I cannot bear... Then her face was on his breast in a passion of weeping, 
and his arms were around her and his lips on her hair. Part 4 Dick found his master a poor travelling companion as they rode home. He made a few respectful remarks as to the sport of the day, but he was answered by a wandering eye and a complete lack of enthusiasm. Mr. Robin rode loosely and heavily. Three or four times his mare stumbled, and no wonder, after all she had gone through, and he jerked her savagely. Then Dick tried another tack and began to speak of the company, but with no greater success. He discoursed on the riding of Mrs. Fenton and the peregrine of Mr. Thomas, who had distinguished herself that day, and he was met by a lackluster eye once more. Finally he began to speak of the religious gossip of the countryside, how it was said that another priest, a Mr. Nelson, had been taken in London, as Mr. Maine had been in Cornwall, that it was said again priests would have to look to their lives in future, and not only to their liberty, how the priest, Mr. Simpson, was said to be a native of Yorkshire, and how he had ridden northwards again, still with Mr. Ludlam. And here he met with a little more encouragement. Mr. Robin asked where was Mr. Simpson gone to, and Dick told him that he did not know, but that he would be back again by Easter, it was thought, or if not, another priest would be in the district. Then he began to gasp of Mr. Ludlam, how a man had told him that his cousin's wife thought that Mr. Ludlam was to go abroad to be made priest himself, and perhaps Mr. Garlick would go too. That is the kind of priest we want, sir, said Dick. Eh? That is the kind of priest we want, sir, repeated Dick solemnly. We should do better with natives than foreigners. We want priests who know the country and the ways of the people, and men too, I think, sir, who can ride and know something of sport and can talk of it. I told Mr. Simpson, sir, of the sport we were to have today, and he seemed to care nothing about it. Robin sighed aloud. I suppose, he said. Mr. John looked well, sir, pursued Dick, and proceeded to speak at length of the Fitzherbert troubles and the iniquities of the Queen's grace. He was such a man as was to be found throughout all England, everywhere at this time, a man whose religion was a part of his politics, and none the less genuine for that. He was a shrewd man in his way, with the simplicity which belongs to such shrewdness. He disliked the new ways which he experienced chiefly in the towns, and put them down, not wholly without justice, to the change of which religion formed an integral part. He hated the beggars and would gladly have gone to see one flogged, and he disliked the ministers and their sermons and their prophesyings with all the healthy ardour of prejudice. Once in the year did Dick approach the sacraments, and a great business he made of it, being unusually morose before them and almost indecently boisterous after them. He was feudal to the very heart of him, and it was his feudality that made him faithful to his religion as well as to his masters, for either of which he would resolutely have died. And what in the world he would do when he discovered at Easter that the objects of his fidelity were to take opposite courses? 
Robin could not conceive. As they rode in at last, Robin, who had fallen silent again after Dick's last piece of respectful vehemence, suddenly beat his own leg with his whip and uttered an inaudible word. It seemed to Dick that the young master had perceived clearly that which plainly had been worrying him all the way home, and that he did not like it. End of Book 1, Chapter 4 Recording by James Carson